Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. You've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here. We're in Awesome Inc. And there's some crazy news that just came out uh, related to podcasts. So Joe Rogan just announced that he's going to be exclusively on Spotify. That's pretty crazy. Pretty and, nuts. And then uh, after that happened, the the jump in Spotify stock, that was just shows how valuable his show really is. Yeah, it went I mean, up $2 billion in market cap. Yeah. I mean, that's insane to think that his podcast is that popular that it can have that kind of impact. Yeah. On I mean, I'm pretty sure it's the number one podcast in the world. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's just like that Netflix strategy to get those really great originals mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, get the audience. So big move for them. It's yeah. Pretty crazy. Good for him. I'm kind of waiting for uh, Spotify to reach out to us. Yeah. We're, we're just a gold mine. We're almost here. there. Undervalued. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So who do we talk with? Uh, we sat down with Christian Beck out of, uh, Indianapolis. So he's got a company, called Innovate Map, their digital product design agency. Uh, I really liked the discussion. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. He had some really cool wisdom to give. Um, so he focused mostly on design um, and kind of where design fits in um, as you're starting a company. So a lot of times when you're first starting a company, you want to focus on the product itself and, and customer outreach. A lot of times you don't think about design and user experience, but uh, Christian gave some really cool advice and wisdom on how to approach that um, in terms of, of a startup. I know Evan got out, got a lot out of it, and uh, it was really cool for me to hear some of the some of the advice he gave as well. Yeah, it, it was wisdom. You know, he's been in the industry a long time. Yeah. He's worked on some really big products over his career. Uh, so now he's you know obviously you know providing the ecosystem and the people up there in Indianapolis with some really great uh, skill sets and wisdom. Like I said, uh, and he's trying to get more uh more outside that region so he really wanted to to do an episode with us and, and reach some of the people here in Kentucky that might be starting companies so it was a really useful episode i think you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it yeah this is one of those episodes where uh we're kind of reaching outside of Lexington Louisville Kentucky area i think we say it a couple times in the episode but it's one of those scenarios where uh when the tide rises uh, all boats rise with it so that's kind of how we're looking at these when we branch out to Indianapolis or Nashville or Cincinnati this is just that region that we want to succeed so badly and I think Indianapolis is a, a couple steps ahead of where Lexington and Louisville are and um, some of the typical areas that we, we interview. So uh, we hope you guys get a lot out of this. There's a lot of good wisdom in there. So we're going to go ahead and dive into it and uh, hope you guys enjoy. Let's go. We're here with Christian Beck. Thanks for joining, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you uh, you actually have a tie to Lexington, right? I think when we spoke on the phone, you mentioned that uh, your wife's family from around here, so you're familiar. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm excited to get back down there once we're allowed to cross state lines again. <laughs> and you're in uh, Indianapolis now, right? Yep, yep, Indianapolis. Cool. Well, let's just jump into your background so the audience can get a better idea of where you come from, your education, your professional background up until uh, Innovate Map. So just jump right in wherever you want. My story for for this interview would start at Indiana University where I got my master's in human-computer interaction design, HCID, uh, which is a mouthful. But back that was back in 07 when they still called what you kind of see is UX design or product design was really called interaction design. So that's where I got my degree. And then I moved out to 
the Bay Area, so north of San Francisco, working at Autodesk designing AutoCAD vertical software. So for uh, urban city planners, you know, people designing utility lines, uh, I designed the software that they use to design those. Uh, and then uh, we moved back to Indianapolis in late 2011, where I started leading a design team at uh, it was called a Primo, which was one of the, the first major acquisitions in indie tech in 2011. Uh, they're a marketing software company for really large marketing departments, things like, you know, FedEx or uh, at uh, Bank of America, these, these teams of like thousands of marketers. So they made software for them. So when I joined that team, I was the lead designer and then helped build the team. And then they got acquired by Teradata. Um, which is a hardware company and they were buying up a lot of software companies at the time. Um, so in, on my resume, it would say Teradata more than a Primo, but uh, I kind of built the team there, started hiring higher designers in, in Munich, Raleigh, um, and Indy. Um, but while there, my, I reported to the head of product, so VP of product, Mike Reynolds, uh, so he's my boss's boss. I reported to the director of UX and then his boss. He approached me one day about starting an agency. Um, so at this time, this is 2000, when was this, 2014. So I was, you know, I've been, I've been doing this for almost eight years at that point. Um, and I'd only been in-house, meaning I'd only worked as a designer inside of software companies. So for two big companies, you know, Autodesk and, and Teradata, um, but he approached me to start an agency to to take what we did and try to serve more tech companies in indie. And so um, I said yes, even though I I'd always had a I wouldn't say a love hate relationship. I just really didn't like agencies that I worked with um, at all, and I'd never imagined that for myself. I figured I was just kind of like I don't know, at the time just kind of climbing the the ladder and, and moving up in software. Um, and so he approached me with that, and so we started an agency. Uh, what we what we call a digital product agency, where we try to sort of do all the functions of of a product organization for uh, tech companies that either aren't ready for that to be in house, or it's maybe not their their sort of core skill set. Yeah, and you know one thing I noticed was there's not a whole lot of product design agencies around. You know Lexington, and I'm not aware of a whole lot in Louisville. What made Indianapolis ready for you know product design agency? You know, because I imagine that once those start popping up, you're a little later in the you know startup ecosystem stages. I imagine so because uh, you're a little bit more developed. You probably had some success, but talk about you know why Indie was ready and and what has led to some success for you know Innovate Map. Uh, I mean, that's a good question. I've I've had to think back on like because I was. I mean, I'm not gonna. Sit here and say that I get the time that I knew everything was going on. I'm kind of like someone who trusts my gut and makes a decision and goes. So I, that was like as far as I thought. Mm -hmm. But when I look back on it to think, you know, what really was there, uh, we did have some big acquisitions really starting then and then and then a few years after that that I think helped, um, you know, build the tech scene a little bit more, you know, feeding capital back in and starting, you know, more tech companies. Um, so I don't know what necessarily made it ready. I think we had several large software companies at the time. We had Exact Target, a Primo acquired by Teradata. Uh, we had Angie's List. Um, we had at the time it was called Interactive Intelligence. Now it's since been acquired by Genesis. So we had a lot of 
fairly large software companies that were in Indianapolis. And as you get large software companies, they get more mature, they get larger design departments to help support it. And then that just sort of like helps feed it. And then on top of that, um, Indiana University and Bloomington, and then IUPUI, which is in Indianapolis, were also building up their design program. So that sort of helped feed it too. So uh, around that time, I think it was really just, there was growing tech companies, but it was being, it was outpacing the, the, the design that, that, was, that was out there. So we still are under, under-resourced from a design standpoint in, in Indianapolis. Wow. And talk about like the evolution of Innovate Map over time. You guys have had some great success. Um, you guys have a pretty large, you know, good-sized team. Uh, and some of the success, you know, I'm looking at your website here. You know, you've had 11 exits of companies you guys have helped. Um, you guys have taken, uh, you know, a whole, you know, hundreds of products. I'm trying to read this and, and talk at the same time. Uh, you guys taken quite a bit of products to market and, and taken to another level. Um, you guys have a lot of CEOs and founders that you know have worked with you and can can reference you guys as great work. How have you guys been able to you know have this success in relatively short amount of time? You know, if you started in 2014, you know, that's six years. How have you how have you seen you guys? I feel like uh, for an agency, I feel like you know it takes a while to build up that kind of client list and have that kind yeah, of yeah. Well. I mean, I, I, I can't necessarily say there's some like secret sauce that, that doesn't involve really just some of the people that were involved when we started. So, so Mike Reynolds, our CEO, he led product and I think he built up a pretty big network and that's really where we started. So in 2014, um, I stayed on for my full-time job the rest of the year. He left to, to go get this off the ground. And so a lot of the original companies that we signed on as clients were connections that he made through his work there. So if there's anything to sort of like extrapolate from there for anybody starting, like networks matter. They are yeah. extremely critical. And he'd been at a primo, I think for about a decade, you know, so he'd built up a lot of those relationships and those people went out, you know, lead engineers or marketers or, or CEOs. And so that was where we started. And what really happened was, um, you know, one of the, you know, one of the co-founders of, of a primo, uh, you know, Bill Godfrey, uh, he was, you know, after they exited, he took that and started investing in new tech companies. And so we kind of started working with a lot of his, you know, sort of portfolio companies. And that was really, that's really how we got a, a strong start. So I wouldn't sit here and be like, these are, there's some like growth hacking there. It's really just, it's all the value of networking and leveraging that to get started. But um, you know, from that point, you do have to move outside of your sort of friends and family round of funding, friends and family round of, of, of clients or customers. So you have to start like leveraging those to get referrals into other companies. But um, I think as luck would have it in hindsight, we had two you know, pretty big VC firms, Allos Ventures and High Alpha. High Alpha started, I think, in like 2015. And so that capital spun up more startups to go along with it. Um, so a lot of that stuff was happening at the same time that just kept feeding. I think if those things didn't happen, we, we may have a different story now, but um, I think we, we kind of hit it at the right time where there's a need. And then some other things that were just sort of just luck, you know, were happening at the same time. Yeah. I think that's the perfect answer. That's, that's exactly um, what, it, you know, the audience needs to hear is, you know, network effects and networking and, you know, building, that strong group of people that trust you is really important, you know, when you go into a new venture. Um, 
at what level do you guys engage your customers? It, it varies, I'm sure. You know, they come to you with different needs. Um, talk about, you know, some of your different services and, you know, how you guys uh, make money in your revenue model. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I should, probably should have started there too. So, so people know even what we do. So when we say we're a product agency, um, when we started, we still kind of draw this diagram now. And, and, and you may have this little content where we, you may not have like product agencies, even design agencies, but a lot of, a lot of markets have development agencies, engineers, and then they have marketing agencies. And so what we try to do is kind of like go right in the middle of those. So we don't do coding, uh, which is, is, I still think a little bit unusual. I think a lot of firms that are like ours have development in house to some degree, but we were pretty adamant against doing that because it's not our skill set. And we felt that if you're starting a tech company, one of the first, if not the first role you have to have is engineering. Um, you can't really make it that far without that. Mm -hmm. um, whereas our role is could come a little bit later. And so from our standpoint, we focus a lot. The easiest way to separate what we do is we focus on the buyer and the user of software. That's the, the, the that's the value prop that we had when we started. It's still true today. Um, now we've evolved a little bit, but in the, in the early days, it was really just my, my role was designing software. Is it easy to use? Is it, is it something that, you know, somebody's gonna be able to figure out how to use quickly um, and get the, get the task done. And from the buyer side, you're, you're talking about marketability. Is this software that somebody wants to use? It, does it look good? Does it speak their language? Does it communicate well? Um, and then the third part of it is, is it valuable? And what we mean by that is, is the software uh, solving real needs in the right way? So that's kind of the product management focus. So that's where we started in the beginning. Then we started adding brand on top of it because a lot of the startups we were talking to, um, they didn't have great brand answers to start. And so that was a need that they're asking us for. So we added um, uh, a principal designer to our team that, that handles brand. So, you know, visual design, logo, voice, uh, all those sorts of things. So now we have a more well-rounded package where we're helping startups, scale-ups, tech companies with brand. And that can be the name of your product, the logo, the visual design, the website design, how you sell your product, the words you use, the way you communicate it, how you package your offerings, how you price it. Is it a monthly? Is it, is it, do you use user credits? You know, those sorts of, you know, things. And then on the user side, is it easy to use? But now it's even deeper than that. We're talking about, um, do you, do you tell people about it? Is it, is, can it go viral? And that's probably a loaded term, but is the design good enough that it is so good you'd want to share it? Is yeah. it easy to get started without a sales rep to walk you through something? So um, that's really the, the ways we help. And if you think about it from like a discipline standpoint, we're talking about product marketing, uh, you know, product strategy, product management, user experience, or, or product design, um, and brand design. So those are the sorts of things that we help companies with. Yeah, you kind of you kind of dug into it just there about the importance of design, and you know it needs to be something that people like looking at and want to share, and it's easy to navigate and all this stuff. Um, but when is it time to start seriously thinking about bringing on design and bringing on designers or, or design firm like yours when you're a startup? Well, I don't think it would surprise anybody to know based on my background that I that I would answer that just by saying you should think about it from the beginning, but. Mm -hmm. um, I hate to give that answer as a designer because it's so expected, but um, 
and of course that's what I have to advocate, but um, I, <clears throat> I'll make my best case and then people can decide whether I'm just biased, but uh, you should be thinking about design of your product from the, from the very beginning. Um, it, it's hard in the beginning because anything that's not just coding or selling the product feels like extra work. And that's even mm -hmm. true like with marketing. So like if you're an engineer starting a product, it probably is painful to think that, oh, I got to market this thing. I've got to like maybe buy ads or I've got to like get, you know, something on social, but you can't just build something and then it sells itself. It needs something to go. So if you think about some of these other things outside of just selling the software or, or coding it, you need to have an engine around it that helps get that thing off the ground. And design is really where it all starts because you don't really want to market or sell something that nobody wants to use. Now, in different industries, you have different, I think, different bars that are higher or lower. I think if you're making, you know, a consumer app that, you know, is, you know, like that, that your friends may want to use or like a gym app or something like that for, you know, for tracking workouts, the design's got to be good because the, the, the competition out there is all really good. That's like a really, uh, that consumer space is, is really competitive and there's a lot of great brands operating in there. Whereas if you're designing something for, you know, more technical field, say like uh, biomedical or pharmaceutical, you know, lab testing or something, you might think you can get by with, with less design. And so in those cases, I'd say that you think of it as an investment where the, the more thought you put into designing something well from the beginning, the cheaper it's going to be to build in the long run. So it can seem like an extra cost, but if you're designing it well, you'll get fewer, if you think about it from an engineering mindset, you'll say, well, you'll get fewer defects later on. Um, if you design it well from the beginning, marketing is a lot easier. Marketing crappy looking products is really challenging. If you're in sales, doing sales demos from crappy looking yeah. products is really, really challenging. So design is really a facilitator on a lot of different things in your product, not to mention it'll be a lot more uh, adoptable by, by you know, potential buyers. Yeah, so there's like all these different types of design. You know, there's, there's you, user experience, there's branding, uh, all this different type of stuff. How do you know which which one of those to go after first as a startup? Is it you want to get your user experience down first or do you want to build that brand up? Talk a little bit about that. That's a great question. Um, I think that if, if I were to sort of prioritize those areas, I would be prioritizing the, the UX side of the design because it affects the end usage right away, which right. affects engineering right. right away. That makes which sense. Which then affects your sales demos. So you start mm -hmm. there. Um, brand is a tricky thing because there's... I think about brands a lot like I think about like houses. So if you've ever like, I've, I've been through a few houses in my life. And so I'll say that you sometimes have the first brand, which is like your starter home. And that might be your single or you might be married and that's your very first house. Um, but it's, it's, it meets your needs right then. But if you start building a family or you, you get married, like all your needs change and your needs in a house change. And a lot of times that starter home doesn't fit, you go buy a new house. Um, so that's kind of the way brand works too with a startup is like, it's impossible to figure out exactly what your brand's going to be early on. You just have to sort of deal with it at, at what makes sense for the moment. If you look at all of the great brands and look at them through history, they all evolve. Like their first iteration of things from Apple or even more recent things like uh, you know Slack or Airbnb was vastly different in the early stages, not because mm -hmm. it was bad or an afterthought but because it fit what they needed at the time. So 
I typically advise that, you know, on the brand side, you know, I would wait a little bit to see what you've got. Start testing things out as you're selling, because if you're selling that, you start figuring out what words resonate with people. What do people react to? That all affects your brand. But you're designing the actual product. That thing's got to work really well right away, and it's got to be easier to build. So that, that's where you need to start. And then you kind of layer on the brand as you go along. Yeah, you're hitting on all these different things and, and talking about the different challenges and the different ways to go about it. As a designer yourself, what's the one the one of those kind of silos that you consider to be one of the more difficult ones to get right? Which 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 field of design or which type of design is is, is yeah, hard to get yeah. right? Yeah, like is it is it the user experience that's hard to nail? Is it the brand? What where does where does your brand go for that when you're thinking of what's challenging in that aspect? Um, honest answer being a user experience designer by trade, uh, you know, so this could flavor it too, which is, I would say brand is hard, is harder. Not because that's not necessarily my forte. Like I, I, I get brand. I know brand. I, I critique the work that my team does. Um, and I can critique what's out there, but to create it is, is not my forte. So that, that could, that could be one reason why I'd say that, but I, I think it's the hardest with brand because it's super challenging to measure. You can't, you're never fully clear on how it's resonating. Now there's ways that you can do it, which we don't need to get into, but it's, it's a really hard thing to do um, because it's emotional. So a lot of the brand work that you're going to do is going to operate on levels that are, that are, that are deep seated. They, they resonate with people like on a more emotional level. Um, and then I would also say brand design is more artistic uh, than it is uh, than user experiences. So user experience, what I mean by artistic is, you have like user experience design, you can test designs, you're designing for end states in mind. So especially with B2B SaaS software, you're typically designing tools that people use to execute things. So it's a little bit easier in that sense to understand what success means to you. Now, when you elevate outside of that and say, how, what's the brand around this? How should I be speaking to people? Um, that's a really challenging thing because there's not as clear what a right answer is. And you can get these situations where you know, we're designing brands for startups and we'll have, we'll, we'll, we'll actually craft like three distinct brands. And when I'm using brand in this standpoint, it's logo mark. It can be a name, uh, color palette, uh, the way that you speak, is it like cheeky and fun or is it buttoned up and professional? That's all part of the brand. There's a lot of art involved in that that makes it really challenging to figure out, you know, whether you've like hit on the right thing or not. Hmm. And, you know, another question about what's the hardest um, what's the hardest type of company to design for? Is there, are they all, you know, about the same? You know, when I ask that, I mean, is a consumer company, consumer focused a software company more difficult to design for than maybe a B2B SaaS company? Yeah. I, if I had to categorize it in that way, I would say consumer based is harder, um, because your user base can be a lot broader and it's, it's almost less controllable to some degree, you know, especially if you've got like an app that can be downloaded, uh, you know, on an app store or something like that, it can be a little bit harder to figure out who your users are initially. Um, whereas again, in the B2B SaaS, you do have the luxury of operating within an industry that usually has norms or processes that are really well established. So I think in those cases, it, it can be easier. I mean, it's a weird, I, I feel weird even saying any of this is necessarily easier than the other, but if you, if you were to sort of like qualify uh, what's easier to design, uh, when you think about B2B SaaS, there's a lot more patterns that you can start to reuse that you start seeing a lot of, a lot of times. Like for example, in, in most B2B cases, there's going to be some need for 
some sort of reporting or analytics. How are people yeah. doing something or how well is a campaign executing if it's software or if it's, even if it's you know, lab testing software, you need to visualize those results. There's a lot of reusable patterns in there that are, that are pretty uniform. So if you design for one industry, you can take that knowledge into another. Um, the consumer space is really finicky. You're, you're not only designing for something, but you're trying to capture their attention to get them to use your app again. Um, especially if it's like a lifestyle app that they don't have to use at all. Got it. And so here, here's the question about, um, you know, the, the world of software has changed dramatically and it happened uh, when you were graduating, the iPhone came out. So mobile experiences. Um, when you look at, this is just a personal curiosity question, um, in the B2B software space, um, you know, I use apps like Salesforce, HubSpot, Slack, you know, a lot of these great, big, gigantic companies, they have great mobile experiences. How important is the mobile experience in the B2B SaaS space? And, and should you start with that as early as you can? Because one thing that I've noticed with a lot of, you know, B2B enterprise SaaS is heavy desktop, you know, it's heavy web-based desktop applications. Um, but in your view, how important is it to start mobile as early as possible? Uh, that's a that's a good question, and I I'll, I'll probably say something controversial here, but I, you know I don't think uh, the mobile you know friendliness of what you're doing in the B two B space is as important as everybody thinks it might be. Um, it's a case by case basis, but you know a lot of those are built for the desktop because that's what someone's doing. Yeah. What's what's a smarter approach to take when you think about mobile is figuring out what's different in a mobile context for, for, for how somebody's going to use it. So Salesforce is a great example. I mean, um, they have mobile responsiveness. They build kits, tool kits that you can build on top of it that, that lets you go, you know, uh, mobile, but you, you don't just think about resizing the screen. You have to think about the context of what they're trying to do. Um, you know, I've used MailChimp in the past. They're, their mobile app is not great for making an email campaign because that's not what you're doing. It's more for checking the status of your, your email campaign, seeing like who's clicking and all that sort of, you might be able to send quick replies. So the whole nature of the MailChimp mobile app is different than what's out mm -hmm. there. It's not just resizing things. And I think you mentioned my history. This is what the responsive web design movement got wrong was they, there's this movement of say everything needs to be responsive so it can fit on mobile, which, really ignored that your mobile needs are, are, are always different. Um, so there's some apps that port really well, like Slack. I mean, that's, that's just a mobile use case. So there's almost nothing in the Slack desktop app that you can't do on mobile. No. Email, pretty much the same thing. Calendar is very similar. But when you get to really technical B2B space, you need headspace, you need screen size, you need these sorts of things where you're sitting down to do your work. Um, where the mobile use case really starts to change if you're on the go or you're checking something. So I would be advocating for people to not just blindly think mobile, but actually analyze like what, what do we expect people are going to need in, in the mobile space? Yeah. I think that's, that's an important point. I think that might be something that some companies don't think about starting out is that this doesn't have to be the same on mobile as it is on desktop. And it, you know, we need to think critically about, how are they going to use it on desktop and do they need to use it in the same way on mobile or what do they need to be accomplishing when they're checking in on mobile? And it kind of got me thinking about what are some of the mistakes? What are some of the pitfalls that you see companies falling in as it relates to design? I, I think I'll stay on the not taking it seriously enough. Um, and again, totally biased because I'm a, a trained designer, but 
when people take design and want to do something about it, they, they often task the wrong people with doing it. They pull an engineer, they pull a marketer to come do it, but they don't understand the complexity that's involved in, in great user experience design. So if you, want to, if you want an analogy, it's sort of like, uh, again, using a house, it's sort of like pulling in an interior decorator to be your architect. So they're in the space, they're used to doing something there or having the plumber design your house. Like it's, it, it, there's an art, there's a reason why architects have their own school. It's a very complicated uh, you know, feel that they need to do. It doesn't mean that you couldn't theoretically architect a house if you were a plumber or an interior designer, but if you don't have the, if you don't have the experience or the education to do it, there's going to be a lot of things that you miss. And the problem with it is the companies that are usually doing that won't know any better that they've made a mistake. So they'll hire the wrong person to do it. Now, again, if you think about like, if you ever gotten your car worked on and felt like if you don't know cars very well and you feel like you might be getting one pulled over on you by, by somebody because you don't know it or that whole like you go in to get an oil change and they go bring your air filter and they always <laughs> hold it up to your face and you're like, you need to get this change. You're like, they're basically assuming you don't know any better. Um, that's when I call my father-in-law who's in Lexington <laughs> and, and I have called, you know, he built Toyotas in Georgetown for, for decades. And so my wife and I, anytime we take our cars in and we feel like we're getting a run around, we call him immediately, even as adults and say, talk to him and he'll, he'll, he'll do that. Now you take that and you think about companies that read about design and they get it, um, it, but not taking it seriously, not hiring the right people and not actually building the right team around, it can get you in trouble because if you don't know any better, you won't know that, that you've made some mistakes. So where I started at Teradata, you know, my, my, our CEO now at Innovate Map, when he wanted to build the design group, it was a, I think it was like a million dollar investment that they got approved to do it. And his first task was hiring a director of design who I reported to. It wasn't to go grab an engineer and say, hey, go take some courses online in design. He actually took it seriously. So I think what, what I see a lot of mistakes that people make is they, they believe in the value of it, but they don't get the people that can actually help them with. And I think that's, that's something to take seriously because if you don't know it yourself, you can get yourself into trouble. Yeah, makes so much sense. And you know, right people, right tools. What are some of the tools that you see designers use today uh, that are most effective? Well, I mean, the two, the two predominant tools are Figma and Sketch. And there's a brewing battle in the design community about which is better, just like the Mac versus PC. It's probably before your guys' time, those commercials. But it was like, um, so there's a ridiculous battle on which one is best. But those are the two predominant tools right there. Yeah, I've been there's using another, Figma a lot. What's that? I've been using Figma a lot. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Figma is the most approachable of, of everything. You can use it. Uh, it's in the browsers you can use it on any platform. Um, I'm a sketch guy before that I was Macromedia. I don't know if you know anybody even remembers Macromedia before they got bought by Adobe. Um, but I think that those are the two predominant tools. You'll, you'll find a bunch of other small tools here and there. And it kind of depends on if you're a designer that, that likes to do something in code or not, and that mm -hmm. changes your tool set. But um, truthfully, no, no great designer can't use one or both of those tools. Uh, yeah. Well. There is a piece of software that I've become uh, obsessed with, and I do actually everything in it now, except for when I, I can't do something in it. And it's actually called Miro. Have you heard of Miro? I have heard of Miro. Yep. Yes. I've been turning as many people as I can onto Miro. Uh, I'd love it. 
It's, it's a great yeah, tool. Yeah, no, it's, we're starting to use it more now because we're more remote. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of the stuff that it supports, we just did in the office. But yeah, I'm, it was funny. I was in my, I was in a alumni Slack group with like, you know, 500 other designers from my program over the past like 15 years. And the professor asked like, which, which tools would you require? And most of them said Figma and Miro. Those were the yeah. two like predominant ones. Love that. Yeah, no, I've been, I spend a lot of my hours in a day on there. <laughs> I have uh, never even used it. I just know it well. No, I mean, it's like a rabbit hole. So once you start kind of use it and you realize what it supports, you're like, why don't I just do everything in here? You know, it's there's, the communication there is so good. You can put any kind of media in there. And what amazes me is they they hook into these other web applications. So, for instance, you can edit a Google Doc there on Miro. You can view your Figma designs without going externally to Figma. So what they're doing is they're building basically uh, the front end to all collaboration. And it's really interesting. You know how so Slack has built did, the did platform. You all, did you learn all that stuff from a sales rep? From No, just using it, man. Just using it. Yeah, so they do a great job giving like live feedback. And when you open the application, they try to show you something new. It's just like it's just a great user experience. I've yeah. learned so a lot. That was a loaded that. reversal question for you that that that, that was proving the value of design. Yes. So it was yes. unbiased. I let you do it because you just described exactly what, I mean, think about the exploration you just did in that product. Like the old school method was like, Hey, can I get 30 minutes to tell you about these new features? Like nobody did that with Miro. You just like explored and realized, Hey, this thing could do everything. So anyway, yeah. good design. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, design is also becoming, how do we, and you can, Correct me on this if you don't agree or you look at this differently, but a lot of applications are now really considering how do we aggregate a lot of services in one place through great APIs and connect these APIs in a way that's so simple for an end user to get the value of all of them. So Slack is a basically, you know, it's a communication platform, but I also view it as an API platform. You know, you're connecting all these other methods of work into one place. How, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think, I think Slack, so I, I do agree, but I think usually you have to have something core that you do really well. And I mentioned that because I, I see some startups that just go with that value prop to integrate a bunch of, a bunch of things and say, this is what we're doing. And that's cool, but you, you typically need to do something really, really well or better than everybody else. So it's true. I could totally agree. Slack is growing through consuming these integrations and bringing them into the product and making them really easy to use. But also it's a great, it does chat and communication yeah. really, really well to begin with. It couldn't do those other things without it. If that were true, you'd see, you would have seen other ones that came before it, you know, win, but it didn't. Slack actually got a foothold because it was such a delight to use. I still remember when I first used Slack, I was at a Barnes and Noble before we ever had an office in 2015. And, you know, my, or my lead designer, John Moore and I were like literally smiling as we're using Slack with the Giphy's and the, and all yes. of these little slash commands. And I was like, oh my God. And I've been on chat since the nineties, man. Like, I mean, AOL, ICQ, like old school and I'm, it's the same thing, but I'm smiling as I'm yes. doing it. So even Slack had to lead with that. Um, so I think that it's extremely important for you to grow that way. Um, but it has to start with something core that's really, really done well. Yeah, I, I can totally resonate with that story of, that you just told of Slack. In 2015, I started using Slack at Fuji, and 
we it was almost like a playground because yeah we were we talked so much shit to each other and it was just like such a natural place to do it it was a tight team and it was just like we could always have that level of conversation no matter where we were and just the way you could divide up channels is just so natural they did such a great job um so yes all of that information around design is so important and um you know, I think the audience has a lot of takeaways there. That's amazing. We really haven't done a very, very product-centric, design-centric episode yet. You know, I'd say Unitonomy was one of the first that we really talked a lot about product. Um, Charlie Miller is a product designer. He would design video games and products. Um, but I think this episode is, is really important for our audience. Uh, so we're definitely going to um, you know, push this as much as we can to help them learn. Let's transition to... Indianapolis. No matter what episode it is, we always try to touch on the local community and how we can help it grow. Indianapolis is, uh, I wouldn't say, is, it's probably safe to say leaps and bounds farther than Lexington. And then Louisville is, is somewhere in the middle. Um, how has Indianapolis changed since you've been there and, and why? Oh, that's good. I mean, I grew up here and I left here because I had no interest in living here um, in, in 2007. And my wife was like, there's no way we are living in Indianapolis. Uh, you know, she's from Lexington, but you now here we are. But um, now we've been back for, gosh, what, 2020s. We've been, been back for almost nine years now. Um, uh, when we came back, it was different um, already. But in the last nine years, it's really evolved. Uh, there's, there's more activity. There's more tech activity every year. I mean, we'll see what happens with the economy this year. I mean, it's definitely going to set everybody back a little bit, but I mean, it's grown in a lot of ways. And there's, I mean, we have you know, two large VC firms. We have you know, a lot of smaller, you know, angel networks. We have a lot more angel investors. Um, we have, you know, I think four or five accelerators now. We had zero three years ago. So a lot of this stuff is really growing. We have, you know, sort of like anecdotal, but I see more graduates from the programs coming to Indy. Now, for me, I left right away, which is what a lot of people do. And they come back on that hero's journey to come back and take what they've learned. But Indianapolis is now big enough and a little more modernized enough that it's more desirable for people to come and actually, you know, stay and work there. We have multiple neighborhoods that have sort of sprung up um, in the city to kind of like grow their own sort of mini communities, which I think is important as well. Yeah. Um, you kind of touched on it earlier. You mentioned a couple exits. Exact Target uh, was one of them. What does an exit, and you, you did briefly touch on this, but let's dig into it a little bit more. What does an exit like that do to a city? And take it another step further. What is it like having the Salesforce presence in Indianapolis? You know, the biggest, the biggest you know, the originator of great cloud, software um you know just a behemoth in the in the tech space what's it like having that that presence in, in indianapolis you know on a day-to-day -day basis it doesn't really affect me at all i think if i'm being honest you know sometimes you get tired of hearing about it and you're like you hear about <laughs> salesforce tower oh man you know my my dad's law firm was in that tower when I was growing up and it was not the Salesforce tower, <laughs> but now Salesforce came in and it's like a thing. I don't even remember what the name of the tower was. Like nobody really talked about it that much. It was even before his chase tower anyway. So yeah, we have the Salesforce tower. So I go back and forth between being annoyed by it by, versus being thankful for it, but definitely thankful because, um, when exact target sold for, mm, I think 2 billion to Salesforce, um, that created a lot of wealth 
Um, and not every acquisition does. I'm not going to list the ones that didn't do the same way, but a Primo getting acquired by Teradata, and then I think two two years later, Exact Target getting acquired by Salesforce created a lot of wealth that got spread out into the city. So I already mentioned a Primo spun up startups there. Uh, Exact Target to Salesforce did the same thing. High Alpha came came around. They they raised a large fund and started uh, their High Alpha Studio where they spin up startups. Um, but they also invest capital. Other people involved, I couldn't even list all of them. I, there's, there's, there's probably over a dozen companies that were started by somebody that, that, that came from that, from that exit. Um, but it's not just capital, it's experience. Um, I try to avoid sports metaphors, um, but it's an appropriate one for this where you think about like winning championships, at least at the professional level. I think in college, especially with Kentucky, you just have guys that stay for one year, but uh, we won't get into that. Um, <laughs> at least in the professional level, like to get over the hump, you usually need someone who's been there before to kind of join to join you. Um, you know, even LeBron with the Heat to win, he had to he had to join up with Ray Allen after you know after he'd won with with Boston. He needed someone that had been there that knew how to win, and that's really important with these exits. If you do, if you think that exits are kind of like quote unquote winning uh, to some degree. You need people that have actually seen and gone through the grind and actually gone over the hump to actually see what it looks like, to see what it truly takes. Because um, there's a capital side that we need from those exits too. Um, but it's really that experience for people that understand they were around for, for the ride. They might be you know, employee number nine, maybe they never were C-level, but they actually got to see from like selling out of a garage to selling from the 33rd floor and they saw what it took to get there. So once they go exit, they've got an appreciation for how to sort of like take that knowledge and give it back to another company. So the exits beyond just the capital, which is obviously extremely important, really brings just a plethora of experience that gets distributed. And I think that's where Indianapolis has done really well. Um, the exits were really equitable. So a lot of people made money that then reinvested back into it. Um, so it's not, and I could go on, there's more startups than just those where they went and started new things or, someone's head of product and a CEO went and started two different companies later. That just starts to feed off of, the, off of themselves and spin up more companies. Yeah, I think that's a stage of the startup ecosystem is when you build it to a point, companies can begin to scale to that level and then sell, and then it accelerates everything. You know, Lexington, you know, had extreme, you know, 20 years, you know, 20 years ago, sell to HP, and that was for about a billion dollars. And I'm not too aware of a whole lot of talent that came out of that, you know, just from my experience being around, um, you know, the company I'm at, a, at now avail has some talent from that company. We, we have some advisors from that company. And so it's been interesting to learn about that, that whole extreme story. And then Louisville had Zermed, um, who we heard that story from, uh, John Wilmoth, uh, had about a billion dollars, $750 million exit. And then exited again uh, a couple of years later for close to, I think it was $1.2 billion. Um, so there's been a couple big exits, but I you know, haven't really seen a major, major impact. I feel like, um, could be wrong. I could be missing some things, but haven't seen a huge, huge impact, um, from those exits. So, you know, hopefully we have a few more of those. And in Louisville, you know, there's definitely more promising companies that are marching towards that and have some really great revenue growth and large teams. You know, El Toro mm -hmm. is one that comes to mind. We need to get them on here. Um, there's several others, but I think that's a stage that Kentucky has yet to see. 
and that's that's part of the reason why you know this podcast is good to connect the geographies because we you know i you know i don't want it to, you know indianapolis to be insular i want to share yeah. knowledge and connect so like because it's it's a it's a you know it's a chicken or the egg like how do you get success if you don't have anybody there like you need someone to to, to help bridge the get john wilmoth is great i mean he was good friends with bill godfrey and and they've gone in on deals in indianapolis and 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 so they share that experience and i come here and if i can make inroads lexington to share what we have that's that's what we need to do like you're not just going to get it out of nowhere um that's why making these connections to markets where there is you know that experience is is extremely important and even uh, accelerators or, or programs like awesome Inc. Have to even you know gather that knowledge to, to start to back these companies to get them over the hump is is, is really critical yep what do you see indianapolis needing to improve on you know indianapolis is doing great things um but there's always things that could be done better what are some things you you'd speak to Indianapolis and say, we should do better here. Well, my nature is everything. So my, <clears throat> I would say everything can be done better. Um, but I, I think what I would like to see happen is more risk taking. Um, so on the investment side and, and on the product side, we still tend to be a little bit we it's hard to say we in like a metro area of like a million people but i would say the industry still tends to be a little bit conservative with the way that they want to grow um so i i would like to see some more risks get taken and that starts at the investing level it starts with investors um investing in a little bit differently taking more risk investment to to, to fund companies that want to grow um at a different level you mentioned louisville one one company you should talk to is pod chaser um it's yeah. sort of based out of Louisville, sort of just based out of the, the internet at this point. But they, you know, they they got a lot of investment um, without a lot of revenue, but they they were able to show a lot of promise in what they were building with user adoption. And that's really rare to see in the Midwest, um, you know, or the near South, whatever I call uh, Kentucky. Nobody knows um, where Kentucky is. Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> That's really rare because you know a lot of investors they have their playbooks and they have what the, the formulas at work and in finding revenue growth is 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 important. But um, it, what it does is it closes off uh, opportunities for for different types of growth. And and Podchase is a really great example where um, I see I think they're seeing a lot of great traction, but they also got Midwest based investors to buy into that story. So if we can get more people to do that. We'll start to see people take more chances with with the types of companies that they start in the industries that they they try to disrupt. So Indy could do better there. We could do better on inclusion and diversity, but I mean, what city can't do that? I mean, that's an important cause for me and something that um, I think we have a lot of room to grow in. Um, and there's there's opportunities there, um, but you know, risk. It's also tied to risk taking too. It's it's taking risks on on you know underrepresented you know groups that haven't had a shot at the table they aren't part of the the good old club of of people so risk taking isn't just funding different types of things it's funding different types of people where um you know again sports like taking a 30 year old head coach you know taking a risk on somebody who hasn't uh been an assistant coach before um sometimes yields pretty amazing results and so i, I want to see a lot more of that happen yeah well Christian, we really appreciate you coming on here uh, and, and speaking this wisdom about design. Uh, our audience really needs this, uh, and we'll continue. I love it. I like the idea of us, you know, working together to bridge 
you know, Indianapolis and Lexington and state of Kentucky. I think we should keep doing that. I think a common, a common phrase that has come up in our podcast is a rising tide brings up all ships with it. We said that a couple of times here and I, I think that applies perfectly, you know, bringing the expertise from the bigger cities that are doing things well, the more we can bring that into Lexington, you know, we're not, we're not competing here. We're, we're all, we're yeah. all part of a greater yeah. whole. And I think that that's really important to realize that. Yeah. I mean, design is not talked about in, in Lexington mm-hmm. really at all. It's, it's still very focused on, let's just talk about how to, the, the fundamentals of building a startup and the steps of a startup. But you have to, at some point get deeper than that and get the experience in the city. And then those, that experience will have to start taking, you know, the deeper dives into design yeah, and into the more intricate things of a startup. You know, we can't just stay on this concept of, we just need to talk about the general fundamentals um, of, of startups. At some point we have to dig deeper. Um, and we really, you know, think this episode, you know, can help with that. We'll continue trying to bring this stuff to this market. Cause again, um, in the circles that, that I talk with and just in general passing at some events, you never, ever hear anybody talk about design. And, uh, and I agree with you. It's so important to talk about that um, as a founder when you start your company as early as possible. Um, and it's just uh, eye-opening how how little of that is, is talked about here in Lexington. So thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, happy happy to do it. Happy to, to, to be on here. Thanks for having me. And I'm definitely happy to spread the design gospel. I, I agree. I want to... You know, all that stuff is important, building companies, but we also need to set our, our aims higher and, and have higher standards for the stuff that we build. I think, you know, it really starts with design um, and product thinking. So um, I think we'll get there. And if you ever need me to come talk, I mean, I'll you give me a platform, I'll talk about design anywhere. So I'm yeah. happy, That's happy to do it anytime. So Yeah, you killed it. That's an interesting idea. Awesome. Well, you enjoy the rest of your night, man. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Yeah.